Welcome to this week's podcast. On today's episode, Tiffany and I had the chance to sit down with one of our good friends, Peyton Jones, who's an author, speaker, serial church planter, and founder of the New Breed Church Planting Network. Peyton also runs the Church Planter Podcast and Hardcore Church Planting, two of the most listened to church planting podcasts today. Also, Peyton trains church planters from all over the world through an online course called the Bivo Inner Circle. He also serves as a training catalyst for the North American Mission Board. And on this episode, Peyton shares with us his experience as a church planter, um, but especially in Europe, and what it was like being a missionary church planter in a very post-Christian context. He also talks about the privilege and challenge of partnering with the church that was formerly pastored by the late and great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And then we dive into the heart and the motivation behind his two books, Church Zero and Reaching the Unreached, both of which have been wildly successful, not just in sales, but especially in the way they've challenged the church to a radical way of discipleship and evangelism. I highly recommend them as required reading for any one of your church planners. So without further ado, Peyton Jones. Yeah, so I was on staff at a mega church. That's how I started. So I did backwards, right? If if shoots and ladders is you're supposed to go up the ladder, I went down the slide. So I ended up um, becoming a bivocational church planner out of 25 years of ministry, 17 of those have been bivocational, so hmm. I've been everything from a factory worker to a firefighter to an RN to a, a clinical troubleshooter to a barista to a, you name oh, window cleaner. That yeah. was a good one. Wow. That was a really good job for church planning. But over the years, I've just planted multiple churches, yeah. uh, you know, um, only one in the U.S., but it was a multiplying church, so mm-hmm. and that was in the heart of Long Beach. Well, well, and you're back in California now, though. Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually, I planted in Long Beach, but I'm now in San Diego. Yep. And I want to plant again, but I want to plant a bivocational training center. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So you came back from somewhere. Where were you at before? Yeah, so I started off in Huntington Beach, went to Wales for 12 years, um, started off uh, at Lloyd Jones's church mm-hmm. as the evangelist. And uh, it wasn't until 9-11 hit, and I actually ended up being bivocational, that people came to faith, which, you know, for a year, man, I did all the gnarly stuff like nobody wants to do, like door-to-door, you know, street preaching, going to pubs and nightclubs. I was the best one, but um, none of them bore fruit. And we'd have like a celebrity rugby player, soccer player come. I did all this stuff as the evangelist, no fruit. 9-11 hits, I end up on a factory floor. And within weeks to months, man, three people have come to faith. And these were like hardened factory worker guys. Yeah. Wow. What was it like working at a church that was pastor? Was R.T. Kendall still there or did he... No, I was actually in the Welsh one. So yeah, I was in the okay. Dockside Presbyterian Church, which uh, is kind of like the Detroit of Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Which parts, I'm from Detroit, so I totally know what you're talking about. Parts of Blade Runner were there. This is a scar right there from a wow. rugby player just a few weeks in that beat wow. my head into the into the street till I was yeah. unconscious. A rough place. Wow. Yeah, wow. Contextualization there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I had no idea what the what the street, the guy motioned so for you me to come over. you weren't in part of town where the proper Brits were. No. No. Well, you know, it's funny because the Eng- everybody, you know, they, they watch, uh, you know, um, what's the one, Downton Abbey, and they think, oh, I'd love to live in Britain. Yeah. What they don't realize is there is a huge class divide between what they call working class mm. and middle class. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I was in a working class town. Mm-hmm. So these are just, just generations of guys that were coal miners. They died young, you know, up into the 70s. Then factories rolled in, steel working factories, all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. these guys just worked hard and died young. And they were a rough 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, mo- most of the stuff that we would deal with when people come to faith was, you know, they'd say, hey, I can't stop going to prostitutes. How mm-hmm. do I do that? You mm-hmm. know, and so you're, wow, man, I really got to start thinking about how the power of the Holy Spirit works and yeah. sanctification for these guys because Paul says everything they need for a life of godliness has been given to them. So I got to figure out my theology here. Yeah, yeah. What was church planning like in in, 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 in the UK? It was hard. Yeah. Really hard. In fact, um, people ask me, like, is, is church planning easy or hard? And I'll say, well, if God's in it, it's still hard, but he does all the heavy lifting. In mm-hmm. some senses, there's nothing easier. But if God's not, like, I would never take it upon myself to try yeah. to plant a church there. I, I just think you'd be foolish. But yeah. all of our church plants were accidental. So I accidentally planted in a Starbucks um, doing a Dan Brown Da Vinci Code because part of mm. my longer journey was after my second church there, I quit. And I told God, you know, I don't want to work for you anymore. Mm. And, uh, you know, reading groups start up on Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, and I turned to 30 people the first night, and I don't want to do it again because well, I wasn't in ministry. I turned to 40 and then 50, and I became a church plant that multiplied. And <laughs> It was well, just accidental. I had no clue what was going on. Yeah. It was yeah. just a spirit. Yeah, man, that is that's really really incredible. So, how long were you in the uh, in the UK before you came back? Twelve years. Yeah, yeah. And then when you came back, what was that journey like? So that was funny because uh, my sending pastor was a guy named Bill Welsh, who was um, he had a church called Refuge Huntington Beach, which is where I grew up. And he, I came back and said, "Hey, I think I'm supposed to help people do what we did over in the UK here because Britain is." you know, maybe 50 years ahead of where America is, but America's fast catching up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I think I'd like to help people plant not the churches that would reach people now, but the churches that would reach people in the future, like churches that will sustain beyond 20 years when all of the, you know, boomer dollars have dried up, yada, yada, yada. And he said, you know, I don't think there's a need for um, church planning. And uh, so we did a study, and we mm-hmm. found out. Now, not an Ed Stetzer, you know, Sin Institute study, <laughs> right. but um, we did a, a Peyton Jones study. And I called all the churches, found out how big their congregations were. Hmm. And uh, and I, I just, I knew they'd exaggerate. Well, that worked better for my study. And I said, uh, <laughs> I said, well, so the conclusion was, it was a mega church of about 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, guys, Stephen reached 10% of the population of Huntington Beach. We'd have to plant... 28 more churches the size of Refuge. Mm -hmm. And I just sat last week with uh, a bunch of churches in Huntington who came together and was able to share that, and they're all working together to raise money to plant collaboratively in the city, which is rad. But but he changed his view, and so I planted Refuge Long Beach for him, and we planted in a dangerous neighborhood. I mean, it was like people... Prostitutes, three prostitutes came out of the sex trade mm. in our first couple of years. Um, five homeless people got jobs. We got jobs for them in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of people that <laughs> ended up going to prison. We'd always say we had a big prison ministry. Yeah. We, um, we, uh, you know, we had people that would get baptized and months later get shot in the back by police wow. for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Totally innocent, wow. but it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but that that was Refuge Long Beach, and it's yeah. still. Reaching the marginalized. So you're you're like a serial church planner, and I hear, uh, and I've known a, a lot of serial church planners. Not not very many of them can make good church planting leaders and trainers because they just don't think systematically. But you've been able to make that shift. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, I I think the number one thing is I'm not really a systematic guy, but I kind of I'm I'm a huge fan of Wesley, and Wesley was all about discipleship. Mm-hmm. So when Wesley 
And I hate bandwagons, you know. I, I definitely don't like, you know, hopping on a bandwagon and yelling, yeah, yeah. So when I heard people talking about discipleship, I was like, okay, this is going to be like the latest trend. Everyone's going to talk about it. Nobody's going to do it. But the reality was it was just discipleship. But I really don't think I learned what that looked like until I was in Refuge Long Beach hmm. because we had planned out multiple churches. So my first string went, my second string went, my third string went. And I looked around and thought, man, no one here that I think looks like a leader is left. Mm. And God was like, just disciple the people in front of you. And those are now the leaders. Because I was like George Bailey. I was trying to get out of Long Beach. I was right. like, I need to go to San Diego, and I need to get out of here. But I kept sending out my best. So then it was like, man, you know, like, I'm like, George Bailey, get me out of Bedford Falls. Get me out of Long Beach. I love the church, mm-hmm. but I knew I wasn't called to stay there. Yeah. So um, I stayed longer, but that God kept me there so I could learn what happens when you just disciple the people in front of you. They have the best leadership team now mm. that that church has ever had. So really, you started indigenous uh, raising up leaders right. in your indigenous context there yeah. way back before we were really talking about it. Well, I, you know, I accidentally stumble into things. I'm not that smart. Like I'm not, I, I don't, you know, normally I retroactively discover stuff in the Bible. So I'll be doing something and it's out of necessity. Like right. in Europe, you just do stuff out of necessity. It's mm. not like you figure it out. It's like you do it and then you're reading the Bible and you go, oh, Oh, I see why they... Because a European post-Christian context is yeah. very much like a pre-Christian right. context. Yeah, right. And so, you know, we would find ourselves doing... And Wesley, of course, when he rolled in, he preached a gospel. Right. And then hit the reason the Methodist grew is because he set up those bands, which were right. little small groups that he had of like 10 to 12 people. He said, just keep meeting. And then discipleship and the Methodist movement was born. Mm. And that that kind of... As I moved away from Long Beach, before I plant again, I'm trying to to study him because I think he's the closest thing we've had to the Apostle Paul. Yeah, Aww. yeah. In 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 a, an American context, you know. Yeah. Now, obviously, the the continent. Yeah, absolutely. Quite a bit You're right. Then. You're right. Let me let me qualify in yeah. the West. Yeah, in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, that's. I mean, I don't. I, if I mean, if you look at American religion, uh, you know, post, uh, you know. 17, 1700s, I don't think you've seen a movement like the Methodist movement. No. I mean, you, you have a lot of Baptist churches planting churches, definitely yeah. the, the Baptist group, but, mm-hmm. and so they might be a close second, a very yeah. close second, but the Methodist movement and what's given birth to, the denominations that it's given birth to, yeah. um, the Wesleyan movements, I mean, the, that's huge. Yeah. And, and also, too, like, you know, Stetzer said that um, in the 21st century, Calvary Chapel was, you know, the most prolific church planting mm-hmm. movement. And I came from there. I'm not in Calvary Chapel anymore. Mm-hmm. But what was kind of cool about Calvary was it was everything they talk about in Hero Maker, where it was all about, um, impact, you know, it, it, they just gave you permission. Yeah. They didn't give you help. Yeah. They never funded you. They never gave you money. Mm-hmm. They didn't do anything other than say, well, brother, come here. If you think you're called there, let me lay hands on you. Let's send you out. And you were on your own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what was kind of cool is it, it, it just gave you permission. Now, I look back at the movement and I think, oh, there's things that could have been improved and done differently. And there were, you know, if I look at Calvary, um, because Chuck didn't want to name Chuck Smith, founder, did not want to name a successor, did not want to... What, what ended up happening was it, it was kind of like the opposite of Wesley. Like he didn't train up leaders and mm-hmm. you can see now the movement very much dying. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. It's kind of holding that tension between movement and institution and right. and, and, and trying to build both. Right. Yeah. It was something about Southern California. I mean, you got Calvary Chapel 
vineyard, but yeah. probably two of the most recent church, real church yeah. planning movements that we've seen. Yeah. How early were you in uh, Calvary Chapel? Well, I was 86, 87, I think. Yeah. And um, what was kind of cool was the Jesus movement. You know, you had guys like Keith Green yeah. and my wife, uh, her oldest sister married Keith Green's best friend. So he's on all the albums, and he wrote You Can Run to the End of the Highway. So my wife was the youngest of seven. All of her brothers and sisters were like 20 years older than her. Mm-hmm. So her mom had her when she was like 40, you know. So what happened was all these people were like, they were all missionaries. Mm-hmm. And so when I met my wife, it was all like, they were crazy, go, go, go. But the the thing a lot of people don't know about Calvary Chapel was there was this guy mm-hmm. named Lonnie Frisbee. And Lonnie Frisbee pretty much started Calvary Chapel and pretty much started Vineyard both. Mm-hmm. Wow. And both Chuck Smith and John Wimber kind of wrote him out. Yeah. Um, there's a movie called uh, Frisbee, The Life and Death of a Hippie Preacher, but he was the apostle. Chuck yeah. was the teacher. He wasn't an evangelist. Lonnie Frisbee was the apostle. Same with Vineyard. John Wimber was the prophet teacher. Yeah. Um, literally, like like Lonnie Frisbee, guy was so crazy anointed, he'd, he'd go to the beach and he'd be like, hey, you guys. It'd be like a crowd of 500 people, literally, because all the hippies hang out at the beach. It was free. He'd be like, come here. God loves you. And he'd start sharing the gospel. And then five minutes, he'd be baptizing, <laughs> you know, like 50 people. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's how Calvary Chapel grew, was yeah. you had an yeah. apostolic leader there that yeah. just... And that's crucial yeah. for any... Now, he was gay. Mm-hmm. Um, he had AIDS. He died of AIDS. And so when it was found out, originally he used to share that as part of his testimony, yeah. and he had repented of it, but he quickly realized that's not acceptable. This is like back right. in the 70s, yeah. and he was like, I can't talk about this, so he hid it. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah. of course, once you put something in secret, right. but towards the end of his life, he started ministering again. You know, he yeah, I mean, he was still that. ministering until like the 90s or something like that before yeah. he died, right? Yeah, he came back. He had like yeah. a little comeback, like a yeah. couple mm-hmm. couple years. But I think he came out to Florida, and um, I think there was some covering here in Florida or right. something like that. And then, right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I got way off on a tangent. Sorry no, about no, that. No, no, but, but I mean... Uh, I, study, well, I study movements, and I study right. kind of like people that are apostolic, where you're like Whitfield. He was not a pastor. Wesley was not a pastor. These right. guys were right. apostolic, right. and we they still pop up, like Elvis sightings today. Right. You still see them in the supermarket sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but th- those are like really broad theological um, yeah. thinkers, right? Because, yeah. I mean, Wesley was Anglican, but mm-hmm. he wasn't Anglican, right? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the Calvary Chapel guys, John Wimber, I mean, they were, they were reformed, but they weren't reformed. I mean, they were brought mm-hmm. theologically. What, what have you learned over your, you know, in terms of even like people in ministry? Yeah. Um, Man, my views on things have changed so much over the years. I mean, I, I was like the reform poster boy in Wales for a while. And um, for me over the years, I just... I think I hold my theology loosely because I realize we see in a glass darkly. And so when I was younger, I was never the fighter, you know, the theological fighter, but I was a reader. I devoured books. I mean, I, I read like Hodge cover to cover. Like that's, that's, that's just stupid. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there's three volumes on systematic theology. And now, now it kind of bores me, you know what I'm saying? Like, but for me, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I don't have all this figured out, but rather than sitting in a study trying to understand stuff better, I need to get out there and just start practicing mm-hmm. what I already know. And that was a game changer for me. And, and to be honest, going on staff with, with Lloyd-Jones's church as the evangelist, that forced me mm. to stop being a bookworm mm-hmm. uh, minister, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 
I which, still read. I still read. I'm, a, I'm still, a, but I have to do, if that right. makes sense. Which is interesting because, I mean, Lloyd-Jones never wrote anything. I mean, anything that's written down is a sermon of his that yeah. was transcribed. And, Absolutely. And so, I mean, he's an intellectual giant, you know, people would say, but he didn't waste a lot of time writing no. books. And it's not a waste of time to write books. Right. But, I mean, yeah. he was really just practical yeah. about his theology and his teaching. Yeah. 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 And I think in, in his time, I mean, his role was really to kind of bring back faith in the gospel, kind of like, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis was like to secular Britain, right. you know, where it brought back a sense of, wow, we, we can look at the gospel. Lloyd-Jones did that in the church, because if you remember like 20th century, like mm-hmm. the, the they just had World War I um, shortly. So it wiped out an entire, decimated an entire generation of men. Uh, we, we don't have an appreciation in America for the Great War. They call it the Great War. World War II is not the Great War, but literally it emptied their churches of men. And the guys that came in to the pulpits often were from like Basel or other seminaries that by that time had gone extremely liberal. Mm -hmm. And those guys who never would have gotten into a pulpit um, filled in the places where the guys who left for the the field to be chaplains filled in and Britain just went down. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Lloyd-Jones was kind of that clarion called the return back to the gospel. And and he, he stuck to that. And I, you know, I remember reading him going, dude. That's, I believe the gospel, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it worked on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So you uh, are a I mean, great thought leader, and uh, you train a lot of church planters, and especially in, in Southern California. Um, in your context, I mean, you're, you, you're able to mobilize people from different classes. Um, what are some ways where you've seen, like, women in ministry, women in church planning leadership? I mean, where, yeah. where have you seen that, and how can... You know, a lot of our, our listeners are leaders of organizations and denominations. Right. And by and large, uh, and Tiffany, you can chime in, um, but by and large, those leaders are, are men and their mm-hmm. planters are men. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you've seen women in church planning leadership. Absolutely. What, what's that look like? Well, so for me, you know, the, the first stage for me, because I was always like, I'd read that First Timothy verse, and it was the one verse. And I was always like, that's all I need is one verse, you know? And um, as I began to, to keep reading and studying Paul, I realized that he had a lot of women. And in fact, um, you know, like when you read Romans 16, like a third of it's women, then you go on and you read church history. Uh, whenever the Spirit moves, um, women get activated. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know sat in Azusa Street, the Welsh Revivals, the Great Awakening. I mean, Countess of Huntington planted something like 18 churches, right? She was uh, Whitfield's benefactor. Mm-hmm. So whenever there's a move of the Spirit, women get activated, and that tells me something. But again, I say that with humility. At this stage, I want to stand before God uh, on the Day of Judgment and, and be able to say, Lord, I empowered everyone that you gifted, and I, I got out of their way. And I don't want to be the guy that has to apologize, Jesus, I'm sorry, I held back people you gifted and released, but I wouldn't let him go. Mm. That was something when I first met you, we connected and, you know, your empowerment of women and releasing them into ministry and, and, um, flourishing so that the church can flourish, you know, um, that really resonated with me. Um, if a church planner or if an organizational leader is listening, cause I get this question a lot, um, so I want to empower women in my yeah. church, and I want to do this. How do I do that? Like, yeah. seriously, just first steps. Well, first off, like, if you look at any church nowadays, right. like, if you look at women's ministry, mm-hmm. right, that's like the sacred cow. You don't mess with that, right, because you'll get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is a church within a church. Mm-hmm. The reason why they're so protective is they're saying, 
look, this is all we get to do. Yeah. Don't take this from us. Yep. We have these gifts, right? And and so it's guarded like very jealously. So so for me, I'm like, hey, they're already doing it. I would say to a guy, I'd say, just invite women to your meeting because you're a team leadership like yeah. Priscilla and Aquila. So um, when I was a youth pastor and I started off my... Um, I was just leading this youth group and my wife came in and we were this like male heavy group. I was discipling all these young guys. My wife comes in. All of a sudden I start getting females sticking around because she was ministering. She yeah. was shepherding and pastoring yeah. them. So uh, at, a, at a certain point, like it just over the years I would see this. And of course in a church plant scenario, right. your gifts automatically get activated. Right. Everybody's gifts, everybody's gifts are needed, yeah. right? Like you can't do a church plant without activating everybody's right. spiritual gifts. So they just start using them. So once that happens, what I would say to that guy is I'd say, just invite your wives to the yeah. meeting and see, yeah. just invite them. Yeah. Because it started with me where um, we would make decisions and all of us would go back to our wives and they'd be like, you what? Mm-hmm. Well, well, and we'd come back and sometimes it'd be, hey guys, I talked to my wife and dude, we're blowing it. You know, and the other guys would be like, my wife said the same. Or you'd have the guy who maybe didn't want to admit that, you know, the wife gave him what for. So he'd be like, <laughs> hey, guys, I prayed about it. And uh, I think we need to rethink this. So um, it, it, I would just say just start there and see yeah. what happens. Because what I've noticed, so like the guy who founded New Breed, the network I founded years ago, mm-hmm. he's my co-founder. He went on to lead Acts 29 yeah. Wales, yeah. guy mm-hmm. named Die Hanky. Um, he had a church plant in the roughest neighborhood. Like literally, he'd be like, look, when you come to my neighborhood as a council estate, <laughs> again, it was not Downton Abbey, uh, <laughs> 60 to 70% unemployment. Like if you open the front door, kids might run in and like mm-hmm. push past you and steal you. Mm-hmm. So he had a you know, bull mastiff, mm-hmm. right? Wow. So um, just for security. Yeah. It was a rough place. Um, so he he kept doing this church plant and nobody was coming to faith. No one was getting to come to faith. And one day, just discouraged, he said to his wife, I'm not going to preach. I said, I can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And he goes, will you just share your testimony? And she got up on a Sunday morning, shared her testimony. Five women. She, she had been uh, hospitalized for a depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She shares this deep testimony. And uh, five women just broke and wow. came to faith right there. Wow. And imagine that. When we don't hold or hold our women back, what happens, mm. right? She was able to take the sermon slot that morning. Mm-hmm. Right. If that happened, those that church plant would have never gotten off the ground. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And we, I mean, you know, Linda Berkless, who's out in San Francisco, she's an amazing yeah. uh, catalyst for church planting. Yeah. And she's a fantastic example of what uh, a, a woman church planting leader can do uh, when you empower them and yeah. release them. Yeah. yeah. Hey, man, you wrote a lot of uh, really cool books, Church Zero, um, Reaching the Unreached. And so talk about, I mean, I want you to talk about the books, but talk about the why and mm. where they came from and why you wrote them. Well, it's a funny story that about my books, because um, when I came back, I had all the training that we did in Europe for jumps, uh, for a new breed called Jump School. And Jump School was just like, it was this tome, dude. It was like a thousand pages, printed pages of church planner training. Like uh, Sin Network has the Sin Network training. Mm-hmm. It was that. and But it was in a European context. Like, how do you plant churches? You know, and, and it was all the stuff people are talking about now, yeah. you know, like bivocationalism, all that. But it was it was what worked there. It was, it was very first century. That was our thing. Mm. And so it was called Jump School, and I submitted it to my agent, and he said, hey, no offense, but no one knows who you are. No one's going to read a book by you, a thousand pages on church planning. Mm. And he said, but I see this prophetic burden kind of kicking out 
um, deep within this manuscript. If you can separate separate out for me, and it was Church Zero, and that became a hmm. manifesto for team church planting. That's what it narrowed down to: team church planting, church planting like starting with non-believers. Hmm. How do you do that? Hmm. Uh, Matt Fretwell uh, just wrote his PhD on New Breed and how they, hmm. you know, start with the loss. They hmm. they start with outreach and the loss. They don't start with a core team and how that changes the game. How that changes hmm. things altogether. So, uh, you know, anyways, um, then my second book was, um, that's, that's kind of a, is this what you're going for? Is yeah, this? man, I want to hear it all. Yeah. Okay. So my second book was, um, uh, reaching the unreached, becoming Raiders of the Lost Star. And that started as a really angry book called, mm. uh, it was called, uh, God Save the Church, and it had like oh. a picture of the... That the, was the first the, title? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sex Pistols, instead of the, the picture of the Queen from the Sex yeah, Pistols yeah. album, had a picture of Jesus with, with you know, if you've seen the Sex Pistols, yep, you got yep. a, the, yeah. the sticky tape across the eyes and the <laughs> yep. mouth. And it was taken from Revelation where, you know, you think I don't see and you think I don't hear, mm. but right. I see and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to you. And, uh, and, and so I started writing that and I sent the manuscript out and Don Pape was my editor and he worked for Nav, at that time he still worked for Cook. And I saw him at a church planning conference and he goes, Peyton, I know your stories cause I know you. And he's like, I don't like telling my stories, you know? And he goes, um, I want to hear your stories and I think people need to hear your stories. And I couldn't sleep that night because mm. I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I'd rather teach people principles, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to talk about me. So uh, anyways, I had a little bit of a wrestling match. I decided to put some stories in there. But that book literally became about what I think every church planner eventually gets to, which is the secret sauce of church planning is empowering everybody in their gifts. Mm. That's my number one job. And yeah. I think that's part of the apostolic gifting. Yes. Yes. So when I see prophetic gifts, the prophets stir up gifts and encourage people. Yes. Um, I think apostolics identify the gifts yeah. in, a, in a church planner setting. So I've got another book, which is kind of like part two of Church Zero, which is going to be how to make a fist. I use yeah. fist leadership, you yeah. know, that your five fingers together, uh, yeah. pack a punch. So that's kind of the next. Uh, and then I got one coming out this year. It's called Divine Ingenuity. Okay. And uh, no, it's about becoming a, a... Well, that one... Give us a preview into that. So that one is about mobile ministry and how it looks today. So Paul's apostolic team ministry that's mobile on the ground. It's really kind of like a how-to. I, I originally called it the church planning hand, uh, the ninja planning handbook. Mm -hmm. Because a ninja planner is a guy who... You know, he covers his face, doesn't care if people know who he is. So I'll go back to churches. They have no clue who I am. And I planted them. That's awesome. You know, like I'll go back there and, you know, um, it's it's about, you know, uh, going there in teams, setting up, you yeah. know, training, discipling people to be the same and do the same. But it's pretty much taking what Paul did in the first century and rather than applying it to the 18th century, like Wesley yeah. was, it's it's a little bit different. I'll, I'll pull from some of what Wesley did, but it's a little bit... Um, little bit more just unpacking how do we go first century and of course that was that was wesley's yeah. whole deal mm -hmm. when does the book come out uh they think it'll be out by next february february 2019 okay well but you've got the manuscript and, and yeah, yeah i have to have it done by may <laughs> wow no that's cool. it's almost done yeah yeah well, you know, most of our listeners are leaders of organizations, uh, network leaders. Uh, they oversee church planting uh, or oversee church planters. If you can leave one last thought, um, a challenge or something, that you're just like, man, you cannot lead your organization without thinking about this one thing. Uh, what would that be? Ooh. Well, um, uh, the, the thing I would say, guys, is that the boomer dollars are drying up. And you have about 20 years 
until you've got to start thinking about different funding models. Economics are what's slowing the church down right now. The, mm-hmm. the economic funding models that we're dependent on now are not going to last. And when, when I wrote Church Zero, I literally said, um, this stuff won't make sense now, but wait five to 10 years. And about maybe two, three years ago, I think it started mm-hmm. to, we caught up suddenly where we realized, oh my gosh, the church is shrinking, you know, because prior to that, people were saying the church isn't shrinking, we're fine, you know, the problem, or, you know, what, what problem? And so I would say right now that um, you can get ahead of the curve, but you have, what, what's working or what worked in the 80s and 90s will not work in the next two decades. We have to completely fold it all down. We have to relook at everything, including ministry. Ministry is not going to deliver a fat paycheck. Mega churches will be here, but they will not be the same as what they are today. And um, I I just think the whole thing is getting ready to to change. And I think um, people need to not wait until it's too late. Here's why I say, in Britain, um, in the 60s, they had the cultural revolution came, you know, sexual revolution hit, and it took 20 to 30 years for the church to wake up to it. And the reason they wake, woke up is the church was still big, so there was still a crowd. Now, we're still kind of in that phase mm. where the crowd is still there, but give it 15 years, and they're all dead. Mm. So the, the British church shrunk by attrition, by death rate. Literally, as the members die, the, the 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 silver hairs, the grippers, as we call them. I know mm-hmm. it's I shouldn't say things like that, but they literally, they literally dropped off. Um, and then, of course, by the time they looked and saw the small numbers, the pastor was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like twenty, thirty years. Yeah. As long as the numbers were there, we didn't panic. Panic now. Yeah. Get 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 in gear now. Start talking to some of these guys you don't like that are saying stuff and and ask them help us. One of the things I admire most about Peyton is that while he's a trainer practitioner, he's also a very prophetic voice for the church today. Here's a quote from his book, Reaching the Unreached. He says, at some point we stop being the underground countercultural dynamic force that we were during the first century. If our goal was to become a giant, then we may have reached our goal at the cost of becoming a sleeping one. So the sleeping giant slumbers on and dreams about how awesome it is, end quote. Peyton urges us to stop dreaming about how awesome church has become and to wake up to the realities around us today. The planting strategies of the future might have to look a little less like those of the recent past and instead should look a little more like those of the ancient past from 2000 years ago. Can you do me a favor? Can you subscribe to our podcast and let others know about it? You can also share this episode on Twitter and Facebook. Just tell people about it. And if you have any questions or comments, go to sendinstitute.org. Shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. See you in our next episode.